Good morning. We are back on track here in the book of Acts. We started in January uh, working through the book of Acts and took a break for Easter Sunday um, and, and kind of circling back. If, uh, if more than a week's break made you forget where we were, super quick review, because uh, I don't remember what happened yesterday, let alone two Sundays ago. Um, and if you're a guest today and you're like, hey, I've not been walking through the book of Acts, the book of Acts um, really could be called the Gospel of Luke 2.0. Uh, the Gospel of Luke ends and then Luke continues to write and picks up where he uh, leaves off with uh, the book of Acts. And it's called, uh, in most Bibles, it's called the Acts of the Apostles. Um, we've said really it's the Acts of Jesus because it's the story of Jesus continued in the lives of his followers uh, after he ascends to heaven. And really the, the whole book of Acts in a single sentence is found in the first chapter in verse number 8, where again, Jesus, because he's the point of it all, is speaking to his followers and he says, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. Because we could also call this the acts of the Holy Spirit. Because everything that happens after this happens after he gives them the gift of the Holy Spirit. And he says, when the Holy Spirit comes, you're not going to go, Oh, we got the, the Holy Spirit. I feel warm and fuzzy. Yea, me. No, when the Holy Spirit comes, that power is going to lead you to become my witnesses. You're going to declare the story of the gospel in Jerusalem, where you are today. Then in Judea and Samaria, the regions around you and, and, and expanding from there. And then to the end of the earth, everywhere else in between. And that is the outline of the book of Acts. And it's what we've watched happen. <laughs> we, we've watched today, 2,000 years later after Jesus spoke this, we saw that the, the, the story of Jesus advanced in Jerusalem, which is what we've been seeing so far in the book of Acts. So far in the book of Acts, nothing's happened outside of Jerusalem. A relatively small town, uh, an important uh, city, but not, not anything so far has happened outside of Jerusalem. We're going to see that transition this morning. And we kind of said as this story's unfolding, right? Uh, this is like act one, scene one is the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. The, the promise of Jesus to wait for the Holy Spirit. This, uh, week is the, um, the spring musical here at Temple Christian School. Uh, and so uh, in good keeping with that, Act 1, Scene 2 was what we call the day of Pentecost, 50 days after uh, the crucifixion of Jesus. There's the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, the first sermon that's ever preached, 2,000, uh, 3,000 people rather, place their faith in Jesus. They're baptized. They become a part of this new thing called Ecclesia, the church. And then Act 1, Scene 3, we see the first physical healing in the life cycle of the church, which Im immediately results in an arrest, persecution that quickly begins, opposition that quickly begins to this movement. But 5,000 just men, not including women and children, place their faith in Jesus through this moment of opposition. And, and we see then uh, that the, the power of the gospel advances through that opposition. And then we get to Act 1, Scene 4 is this weird contrasting scene where we have authentic generosity and then we have hypocritical glory hounding. And we see this, this difficult moment in the life cycle of the church right at the very beginning. And then Act 1, Scene 4 
or scene five now, sorry, I can't add past four. Uh, scene five is, is where we were the week before Easter, which was, man, because we're growing, there's needs. There's widows who aren't being taken good care of. We need a little more structure. And so God raises up some leaders from among them. This morning, we're going to get to the, the final scene in Act 1 of the story of the church, the, the beginning narrative of this thing called Ecclesia. And so I invite you to grab your Bibles if you would. If you don't have a Bible, there's one underneath the seat in front of you. And uh, we're going to invite you today to join with us in our tradition where we hold up our Bibles and say a creed together before we jump into the text today. So let's hold them up and let's declare it together. The Bible is the Word of God. The truth of the Bible will change my life. Lord, open my heart and awaken my mind and give me grace to respond. Change me for your glory and my joy. Amen. Thank you so much. Turn to Acts chapter 6. Acts chapter 6, if you're using one of those Bibles from the seat in front of you, it's page 860. Acts chapter number 6. And here's the deal. We're, we're in the final scene of Act 1. Next week we're going to pick up in Act 2, Scene 1. And then we're going to go for a, a few weeks here into the, into the month of June uh, in Act 2. And then we're going to take an intermission. Right? Like any good story unfolding, we want you to be able to go to the concession stand and buy some junior mints. That's what you do at a theater, right? So, uh, we're gonna take a, an intermission, uh, for m- much of this summer and then in, in August we're gonna jump back in to Act 3. Um, and those acts are, we're in Jerusalem. This morning we're gonna springboard, uh, and really catch up next week into, uh, Judea and Samaria. In August, we'll pick back up where it goes to the end of the earth. This morning, though, uh, we're going to cover a lot of ground, but we're not going to read all of it. Acts chapter number 6 is the shortest chapter in the book of Acts. Acts chapter 7 is the longest chapter in the book of Acts. It's also the longest sermon that was recorded in this historical overview that Dr. Luke is giving us. But we're going to pick up where we left off two weeks ago, and that's verse number 8. Of Acts chapter 6. We were just introduced to a group of young leaders uh, who just were appointed. One of them was named Stephen. He's going to be at the center of our story this morning. Stephen, I want you to look at this description. Full of grace and power. What a cool description of a human being. Like, man. You know, in, in... if I was able to pick, how will someone describe me one day, right? I have a lot of theories of some of the things people will say about me one day. Or say about me anytime my name comes up today. But what if our legacy left on planet Earth is that the people who lived in our orbit said, I just saw a lot of grace in them and the power of God. Wowzers. Is that incredible? And here's the question. If we're going to get through this text this morning, uh, then it's important that we start off on the same page. Here's what I'm going to say to you. I want a life that's marked by fullness of grace and fullness of God's power. Do you agree? 
Do you desire that we would experience the fullness of the grace of God, the undeserved favor of God, and a life where we experience fullness of God's power, God's anointing, God's authority? Do you desire that? I do. And so I I really want us to look at this story this morning, not as a historical narrative, although I believe these events happened as they're told. But let's not just be observers or spectators. Let's be students this morning. (laughs) Let's be students who say, man, what does it look like to live a life full of God's grace and full of the power of God? Now that we're on the same page, let's move forward. Full of grace and truth, Stephen was doing great wonders and signs among the people. And verse 9, then everybody loved what he was doing. No. Right? Wouldn't you think so? No. Some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freed men, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians and the Alexandrians and those from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and disputed... With Stephen, historians estimate that there was as many as 400 different synagogues just in the city of Jerusalem at this time. Somewhere around 40,000 people, 400 synagogues. Sounds like the Metroplex, right? There was a church on every corner, only they didn't have steeples, right? There's synagogues everywhere. And why were there so many synagogues? Because people would go to synagogue where they spoke the same language and came from the same culture so that their worship felt familiar with one another. And so these synagogues of different cultures and different peoples of people, because at this point no one had lived in Jerusalem for forever, right? They'd already been dispersed multiple times. And so people had lived other places and been raised other places and existed in other cultures. And many of them had returned back to Jerusalem and they had formed a synagogue with the people that they knew, right? And the thing that they all had in common is they were trying really hard to follow the law of Moses. And this carpenter from Nazareth messed that up. He, he offended the strict teaching of the law And now here's his followers. They just keep saying this name all the time. Jesus. Faith in this name. So they they are arguing with him and they're gathering together people that they don't even worship with to oppose him. Interesting. Verse 10. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the capital S spirit with which he was speaking. Oh, that's awesome. We don't like what you're saying. We just can't stop it. Because you're speaking with wisdom. We're responding with emotion. We don't like this. Okay. He's responding with wisdom and with fullness of the Spirit of God. I want you to see the Holy Spirit show up throughout this story. Because this really isn't the story of Stephen. This is the story of God. And we'll see the Spirit of God throughout this story. So because the Spirit of God and the wisdom of God was something they couldn't shut up. Here was their plan. Verse 11. They secretly instigated men who said, we've heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. You think they would have said that in reverse order? Is that just me? Isn't that weird? Moses and like some God. Uh, Anyways, I don't know. just seems weird. You think they would start with God. Whatever. 
They stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, this man never ceases to speak words against this holy place, the temple and the law. For we've heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. Now, that's not true. But that's what happens when people can't get their way and they won't receive wisdom is we're just going to make up our own reality and insist that you endorse it as though it's true. And they've encouraged people just say what we need to say to get him in trouble. It doesn't have to be true because truth doesn't matter. Us winning is what matters. And so they they charge him of four things in this dishonest rant. They accuse him of blaspheming Moses, the prophet of God. They blast, they accuse him of blaspheming God. They accuse him of blaspheming the temple of God. And they accuse him of blaspheming the law of God or the law of Moses. And what's interesting is he's going to respond to all four of those false charges in a brilliant way. It's awesome. Verse 15 This is just weird. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. I have no idea what that means. I've read a bunch of theologians and commentaries and scholars and people I respect a lot. And they're all like, yeah, I got nothing. What's an angel look like? You got a halo? If you've watched The Chosen, have any of you watched The Chosen? Those those dudes are like ninjas, man. So was he like, I don't know, right? Ironically, I think he looked nothing like the Stephen that we all know. Stephen Kitchens. I've never gazed at you. And if I did, I would never think angel. Perhaps fallen angel, but I don't know what that means. But clearly, there's such a fullness of grace and power that you could, like, smell it on him. Yeah, it's incredible, right? Verse 7, I'm sorry, chapter 7, rather, verse 1. The high priest said, are these things so? These four blasphemies against Moses, against God, against the temple, against the law of Moses. Are they true? Verse 2, Stephen said, brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham, who had many sons. And many sons. Here's, here's the deal. He goes into, I've told you, this is the longest sermon recorded in the book of Acts. We're not going to read this whole sermon. I strongly encourage you to read it on your own. It's more important that we get the big picture of what he's doing here because probably, probably none of us in this room grew up traditional, um, uh, synagogue attending Jewish boys and girls, right? Well, definitely not the girls. They weren't allowed to go to the synagogue. Sorry. So we didn't grow up with this context. 
And the context is profound because what he does is he starts with Father Abraham and he begins to tell the historical narrative. He essentially summarizes about two-thirds of the Torah. He begins to speak about the, the historical covenant promise of God with his people. And he, he, he promises this to Abraham and then Isaac is born and then Isaac has Jacob who becomes the father of the patriarchs of the twelve tribes. And he's, he's giving this huge historical summary. And when he gets to Joseph, he tells a strange version of the story of Joseph. He points out that Joseph was first rejected by his tribes, his brothers. But then he was raised up in a position of being their savior when famine entered the land and he was in Egypt. And then he was their savior. And if you know your biblical history, what happens after that saving is that Pharaoh passes away and another Pharaoh comes who didn't know Joseph or the promises that were made to his family. And he sees there's more of them or about to be more of them than there are of us. We're intimidated by these foreigners living in our land and they enslave them. But because of the covenant promises of God, he raises up Moses. And he points this out about the story of Moses. When Moses was first raised up, he said, the people of God rejected him. He went away for 40 years. He came back. And when he delivered the people of God, then they received him. And he tells this whole narrative of the first time the deliverer came We rejected him. He's trying to set a pattern of behavior. And in case it was too subtle or in case they didn't catch it, he's going to jump to uh, be pretty clear and skip down or scroll down to verse number 51. You stiff necked people. Well, we just jumped right to it. We went straight from the historical narrative to and y'all are the same way, you stubborn people uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. This is what we do as humankind. By the way, don't take this as an indictment against the Jewish listeners here. This is humankind. As your fathers did, so do you. We're stuck on repeat, is what he's saying. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, the Messiah, the deliverer, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. Probably within the last 12 months, by the way, we're trying to follow the chronology of, of how all this is moving forward. You who received the law as delivered by angels and you didn't keep it. You're all offended about the law. That I've somehow supposedly said something bad about the law. You haven't done it. Wowzers. By the way, can we just say this for just a second? I've wrestled with whether I say this because I think. Let me just say this. Remember where we began the text. 
full of grace, he said, you're a bunch of rebellious God rejectors. We have this modern narrative of grace as though it's passive and never says anything that might hurt anybody's feelings. And that is not a biblical definition of grace. Grace says, I love you and I'm walking in humility, but I love you too much to endorse a lie. I love you too much to not speak truth because your eternal soul is more important to me than your emotional comfort. Come on. So it's and, and the reason I hesitate to say that is because I think there's some people who who pride themselves in just telling it like it is. And there's not necessarily a lot of grace in that. And so I, I don't want those who, who abuse grace to necessarily be like, there's my excuse to go on Facebook today and talk about Joe Biden or, or whoever your person is that you want to blast. I don't know. Like, and so, so I'm cautious with that because I feel like grace has been weaponized in the church today. Here's the deal. Walking in grace and power means we walk with truth and love. And so he speaks. And this is what often happens even in the world today when the truth is proclaimed. When they heard these things, they were enraged. They were enraged and they ground their teeth at him. I don't even... Like that sounds like a dentist would not approve. But again, I told you look for the Holy Spirit again and again in the story. But he, Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit. We're going to circle back to that phrase in just a minute. Gazed into heaven. And he saw the glory of God with his eyes. Oh. He saw Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, y'all wouldn't believe what I'm seeing. Behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man, Jesus, standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears. La, 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 la. They cried, they made noises, stopped their ears, and rushed together at him. And they cast him out of the city and stoned him. That actually happened to a real person. That's why. Let's not read this as just some historical story. A guy who was feeding widows a day before. I think a lot of us don't know what it means that a person was stoned in the Bible because we don't talk about it much because it's rather gruesome. Scholars believe that what happened most of the time at this time in history is in every city there was a place. There was a raised piece of real estate that had some form of a drop-off. Maybe not a full-blown cliff like Roadrunner and the Coyote like you're picturing. But some kind of a sharp drop-off where they put rocks down below. And when they stoned a person, technically they would throw them onto the stones. And they hoped that would be the end. They hoped that that person was thrown with such force that the fall would kill them. 
when that was not effective, they would take stones, not pebbles, not little rocks, but significant enough stones that the fall of which would complete the job they had begun. It was an inhumane and public and gross execution. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Full of grace and power. That's what that is. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Which is not the language that we use today when someone dies, passes away, stops living. We don't say falls asleep. That's common biblical language. We're only going to read a couple more verses. Chapter 8, verse 1. And Saul approved. Saul approved of his execution. And there arose on that day, this is a pivotal, history-changing day. There arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. Except for the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. Verse 3 says, but Saul was ravaging the church, entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. For just a few moments this morning, I want to talk about what we see in this long story that, that points to fullness of grace and power. Right? So come back to where we begin. Who wants to have fullness of grace and power? Maybe less of us now that we saw what happened. Where does fullness of grace and power come from? And the first thing I would say is this. We see in the text that fullness of grace and power comes from the Holy Spirit of God, not from ourselves. This guy who... 2,000 years later, we're telling the story of Stephen and parents are naming their children after Stephen. Stephen wasn't the star of the story. Stephen was a servant. Stephen was a guy who worked behind the scenes in the shadows. Stephen was what we gladly would call an ordinary guy who met Jesus. By the way, probably not met Jesus like in the... They had food together. We we don't ever read that he actually met Jesus of Nazareth. I'm saying I believe he met Jesus the same way that you and I did. He heard the stories of Jesus and he placed his faith in them, in, 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 in the truth of that story. And this ordinary man is remembered with this extraordinary legacy, not because of his goodness or his greatness. Because he was filled with the spirit of the living God. 
Which means what's going to be accomplished in my life isn't up to me to muster up. I come to God empty-handed and say, I have nothing to offer of value to you. The only hope that something will come of my life is if you will fill me with you. How incredibly freeing. Nowhere do we read in the story, Stephen musters up the courage. Hallelujah. Stephen doesn't even get to jot a couple notes about what he's going to say. That's intimidating to me. I'll share more about why in just a second. No, the only thing going for this guy is the spirit of God that's in all of his children. If you've been born again, the same spirit that lives in you is the only difference maker in this story. Which means whatever moment you find yourself in, know that the same spirit of God that lived in the first martyr of the church lives in me today. And you know what you'll find in that truth, in that hope, in that faith? You know what you'll find? Grace and power. The fullness of grace and power is found not in ourselves, but in the filling of the Holy Spirit. He's not a priest. He's not an apostle. He's just a guy who met Jesus. I believe God does his greatest work through ordinary people. You know why? As a matter of fact, sometimes we see these really incredibly talented people, and they end up having these huge falls. Like everything just falls apart. And it's just kind of weird to me. I think at some point in time, the super hyper-talented people are like, check me out. And God's like, yeah, I'm not going to compete with that. God loves doing the greatest thing to the ordinary people. Because he doesn't have to fight for the spotlight. Through an ordinary man with an... And here's the thing. Do you know what comes of Stephen's longest sermon recorded in the book of Acts? God fulfills the Great Commission, because now the gospel is going to spread. We'll talk about that in a minute. And these are the seeds that were planted for the conversion of Saul of Tarsus to become Paul the Apostle to completely change the world. That's what God uses this regular, ordinary guy for. It's incredible. Which, by the way, was promised by Jesus. Again, Luke, the author here. He records the first time Jesus ever sent people out to speak on his behalf. Here's what Jesus told them. Luke chapter 12, verses 11 and 12. When they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, check this out. Do not be anxious about how you should defend yourself. Man, when somebody is coming at you, am I the only one who really wants to defend myself? Especially when they're doing so wrongly. They actually didn't accuse Stephen of anything he did. Don't you want to defend yourself? I want to defend myself. Don't be anxious about how you should do it or what you should say. How many of you, when you're going to have a big conversation, you do what I do? I have 57 different conversations about the conversation before the conversation to try to figure out what I'll say on my side of the conversation. Right? I don't know if that made any sense. I got lost there. We had a little too much conversation. Uh, do you do you do that? Do you play that? Well, if they say B, I'll say uh, L. But if they say M, I'm going to say Z. Do you do this? I do this. And I love I love what Jesus is saying. 
You're going to find yourself in intimidating places with powerful people. Don't be anxious about defending yourself or finding the right words to say. Why? For the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. We don't stand in that moment full of confidence. We stand in that moment full of the Holy Spirit of God. That's the hope. When you find yourself in a moment you feel ill-equipped for, congratulations. You're smack dab in an opportunity for the Spirit to do something greater through you than you could ever work up on your own. Full of grace and power because of fullness of the Holy Spirit. The second thing I see in this text is that fullness... Of grace and power comes through the word of God. Stephen says a lot of words in this moment. But I told you he's essentially summarizing much of the Torah. He quotes directly from Deuteronomy, by the way, about Moses saying that a greater prophet other than him was going to come one day. Then he quotes from Amos. Like... I don't know for a hundred bucks if I could quote something from Amos this morning, other than what's in this text, because I just read it in the last couple of weeks. Like, and then he quotes from Isaiah. And he does so without a scroll or a Bible or somebody reading him lines off stage. God's word was hidden in his heart. So when the vice grips of life happened, what came out of him was God's word. When we develop a relationship with this book, you know what we'll find? Not arrogance, because we know answers to Bible questions. We'll find a fullness of God's grace in us. And we'll find a power that only comes from the living, breathing Word of God. So the hope is not that you've got it. The hope is that we're hiding God's Word in our heart. I think for some of us, we're like, man, I wish I hadn't... An experience of more grace in my life. I'm just telling you, you're you're not a passive victim to whether grace shows up or not. It's here for the taking. It's literally here for the claiming. And it's not like some mine that you got to dig through and, and blast some rocks out of the way. No, like it's literally just sitting there like, here's grace today. Just waiting for us. The days that I allow myself to either... Skip time in God's word or breeze through it where I'm totally checked out mentally are the days where I don't walk in as much grace and wisdom. It's just a human reality. I end up more full of me. And nobody wants that. Including me. This incredible wisdom in the moment of your fathers rejected Joseph the first time. They rejected Moses the first time. And y'all killed the son of God. What he doesn't say is, there is a second time that he's coming. They rejected Jesus the first time. They won't the second time. And then he tells them, You've always resisted God's prophets. And then he's explaining, and the law can't save us because we can't keep it. And because it doesn't really change our hearts, we need Jesus. You know what that is? We've rejected God and God's leaders. 
we can't keep the law, and even if we could, it couldn't save us. You know what that is? That's the whole Bible. That's the story of the whole Bible. So God sent his son to save us from ourselves. Let me move on. Fullness of grace and power is found not in mustering up something. It's found in the filling of the Holy Spirit. Fullness of grace and power is found in the word of God. And then fullness of grace and power is found in living for the glory of God, not for the glory of self. It's almost dangerous. Um, We need to be careful to not make too much of Stephen in this story. Because he would not want us to. If we're going to honor his sacrifice well, let's not build statues to Stephen or make much of Stephen. Let's make much of the Jesus whose name was counted worth suffering and even execution. This... This martyrdom was because he believed in a glory greater than Zoe. So so go go back to chapter 7, verse number 2, how he referred to God. He says, the God of glory appeared to our father Abraham. That, That phrase, God of glory, is actually used a handful of times in the whole Bible. What a beautiful name for God. The God of glory. Right? That That's how he sees God. The one who possesses is ruler over and worthy of glory. You with me? I I think that's significant. Now look down to the end after his sermon. Verse number 55, full of the spirit, he gazed up in heaven and you know what he saw? The glory of God. How cool is that? One pastor said this, when we live for the God of glory, we get to see the glory of God. If I live for the glory of self, that's all I'm going to get to see. (laughs) Stephen said, no, he's the God of all glory. And then the great joy in that is he got to see the glory of God. And let me just say this in, in case this needs to be said. I believe that fell asleep is actually the right language, not that he died. Because I believe the moment he fell asleep, he woke up and actually saw the glory of God with unveiled face. Like I'm, I'm that weirdo that actually believes there is an afterlife in the presence of God or separated from God. I believe he woke up and saw Jesus. When we live for the glory of God. And I'll just say this. When he saw Jesus, I want you to see that he saw him standing. Almost every time Old Testament prophecy or New Testament picture language is used about Jesus, it says he's seated at the right hand of God. And we need to be careful not to make much of this because it's not said explicitly in the text. But man, I just can't help but wonder. Is there somehow an idea in the scriptures that when somebody lays their life down for Jesus, he stands and welcomes them home? And I know that's not explicitly said in scripture, but that sure does sound like Jesus, doesn't it? (laughs) Fullness of grace. And fullness of power 
is found when we live for the glory of God, not the glory of self. And then here's the last observation. And this is the one I've been the most excited to get to and been anxious and giddy all week to say. Fullness of grace, living life with fullness of power, is found in the hope of the resurrection. See, I did not intend for us to be at the martyrdom of Stephen today. We're like four weeks behind from my plan on the book of Acts. And I'll be honest with you, just being, we're just talking like family, right? I was disappointed that this is where we were the Sunday after Easter. It's really depressing. Happy Resurrection Day for the half of you who come back next week. Oh, that was salty. <laughs> We're going to talk about execution. And then I started thinking, what better week to examine the life of the first martyr of the church than the week after Resurrection Day? Because it changes the whole perspective. It redefines what it is to just be asleep. Because here's, here's what I want you to hear. We refer to Stephen as the first martyr of the church, but he was not the first martyr for the church. That was Jesus. And he rose again. And because he rose again, every martyr who would come after him faced death with a different kind of hope and confidence and grace and power because we serve the God who's the death defeater. So we face the power of death itself and are unshaken. That's the hope of the resurrection. That's the confidence and the power of believing we serve a risen Savior. This, <laughs> this idea of Acts 1-8 being the the summary and the outline for the whole book of Acts. Jesus says, you'll be my witnesses, right? You'll be my witnesses. When the power of the Holy Spirit comes upon you, Acts 1.8, you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. The word witness, if you're new to the things of the Bible, this was originally lit, uh, written in Koine Greek, not in English. And the word witness in the Greek is the word martus, where we get the English word martyr. You'll declare something with such confidence you'll be willing to face death itself to speak it. That's Acts 1-8. You'll be my, my martyrs in proclaiming the truth of Jesus. And then we look at Acts chapter 8, verse 1, where it says, On that day, great persecution arose. One author said this. We can't do Acts 1-8 and not expect Acts 8-1. <laughs> if we're really going to proclaim Jesus in a broken world... And in a broken culture, 
then we need to walk into that with the reality that there's going to be persecution. There's going to be opposition. There's going to be hardship. But we keep walking forward because we know not even death can end us. That's the hope. We don't walk into persecution enjoying persecution. We just know it's not the end of the story because we serve a risen Savior, which means there's no such thing as endings anymore. He's the God of new beginnings. And the amazing thing about this martyrdom begins this persecution and what the result of the persecution is that the gospel goes to Judea and Samaria. Like only Jesus, only a risen Savior can take persecution to leverage glorious purposes for the hope of the world. Remember a few weeks ago, those of you who were here, a guy who didn't believe in Jesus said, this thing will fizzle out on its own if God's not in it. And here is martyrdom and persecution and the things exploding. Historians tell us that in the first 280 or so years of the church, somewhere around 6 million men and women died for their faith in Jesus. Horrible public martyrdom. And the same window of time is the season of greatest growth we've ever seen in the history of the church. How's that possible? Because we serve a risen Savior. Even when they're trying to to take out the followers of Jesus, this thing continues to grow. There's that much life in it. That's the hope of the resurrection. Now, I do want to say this really, really quickly. Verse 2, I want you to notice it says the devout men, godly, filled with the Spirit, Christ-exalting men, grieved. They mourned. They made great lamentations for his death. And so I just want to say this because sometimes the church doesn't say this super well. We can believe in the hope of the resurrection and still grieve with those who are grieving. To believe in the resurrection is not to say we don't sorrow. It's not to say we we don't lament. They grieved. They just grieved different. And so I'm going to end this morning um, by skipping forward in the story a couple decades. There's two young men in the story that we've talked about this morning. There's young Stephen and there's young Saul, right? Saul who stood there and watched Stephen fall asleep. In a few weeks, we're going to find out Saul has an encounter with Jesus that changes his life. And he would later write this. The guy who was holding the jackets for the people who were stoning Stephen, who approved of it. He watched Stephen fall asleep. And then years later, he wrote this to the church at Thessalonica. I do not want you to be uninformed about those who are asleep. He's telling them, hey, there was a time in my life I was uninformed about this whole asleep thing. 
And I don't want you to be uninformed about those who are asleep so that you may not grieve as others who do not have hope. This young Saul remembers that day and says, there was something different there. And I want you to know about these people who fall asleep in Jesus, there's hope. Since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. The Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and who are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. There's encouragement in the fact that his resurrection seals our resurrection. Doesn't mean we don't sorrow. We just don't sorrow as those who have no hope. Fullness of grace and fullness of power, even in the face of death, has its faith rooted in the promise of the resurrection. And I stand before you today on the two-year anniversary of my father's death. And I tell you, I've never believed stronger in my life in the hope of the resurrection. I believe with everything in me that there's coming a day when everything that is wrong will finally be made right. And when we walk in that faith, there is fullness of grace and fullness of God's power.